Hello, and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast, Episode 5. Today, I'm here with Will Pugh. Will, you might know as being singer and guitarist in Cartel, a band that I think is extremely influential on the pop punk and even pop sphere of guitar rock music. I think their first record really brought forth a higher aesthetic of singing that wasn't really there before and really changed things. And Will has continued doing that by producing some cool bands. He's been working with as a producer for a while now, doing both his own band Cartel, Team, Coin, and a handful of others. Um, We get into what it's like to work with him in the studio. And I think on this episode, Will is particularly insightful and really well thought out about what he thinks about many aspects of producing. It was a really fun talk to have, and I think you're going to enjoy it. So tell me, what's your chain for recording your voice today? I've got my Loughton Oceanus LT381 into a Rupert Neve 511 preamp into an Inward Connections The Brute, which which is like a limiter. And then a blue strap 1176 just for kicks. That's a hell of a chain. You know, you, I, I have to say, I, I think we're on like a dozen or so of these. And I think so far you win for like nerdiest setup on that one. Yeah, it's my, it's my typical vocal recording chain. Um, actually, a guy that I share a studio with, he's got a manly gold reference cardioid. Oh, wow. That, yeah, that's a great mic. Yeah, I'm not using that because he's currently tracking vocals in another room right now. So I was like, yeah, I don't necessarily need the good one for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Well, it's like, I'll, I'll go with my other good one. <laughs> nice. That That is pretty cool. So why don't you tell us all about your background in music and how you went through your musical career and everything? Well, my first instrument was trumpet um, <laughs> back in fifth grade. And then I got braces. So that quickly ended my trumpet days. Huh. I didn't know that that, that was a thing. That's funny. Yeah, I mean, they have like little, um, it, I, I don't really know, it's like a gel or something that can go on the braces so it doesn't actually cut your lips hmm. um, when you're playing, but it, that, it was just always funky because it kind of gave a little like, I don't know, to cut, like a bump in your lips, so it, it made the feel of playing trumpet a little harder, so I, uh, I stopped. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, then I got guitar when I was... I don't know. My dad bought an acoustic from a guy that he knew. Um, it was like an it was an Epiphone, but it was just you know the action was bad. It hurt my fingers really bad to play. So it's it's really tough to learn on an acoustic guitar as far as fingers go, and you know it takes a little bit more hand strength to really form chords. But I think it's better because it it you know once you do move to an electric, it becomes a lot easier than the acoustic was. So started that when I was twelve, kind of just you know, learning how to play Smashing Pumpkins and 311 and all this other stuff that I was into, like the grunge of the day, Nirvana, which because I only had acoustic, that MTV Unplugged record that they did was very consequential to me. Nice, nice. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, this is the way the song's supposed to sound because it's Mm. tough to play Smells Like Teen Spirit with an acoustic and feel like you're rocking out, you know? (laughs) Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much where it got started. And then kind of developed into writing my own songs um had first band in high school and then that kind of morphed into another band that involved some members of cartel and then ultimately throughout high school and early like first year of college that kind of developed into what would become cartel nice and so with cartel how did you end up going from being band guy to producer yeah uh so like in high school i had started to, um, I actually did a record with my first band at some local guys, like home studio where we actually tracked drums with like a, like one of those old Roland 
electronic drum kits. Oh yeah. So yeah, it was interesting that the first live record, like or not live recording, but like studio recording environment, was done with a uh, electronic drum kit. Ha ha. Yeah. Um, it was uh, a prophetic moment, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is funny how those are now becoming such a norm for people when they're just using all synthetic drums these days. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> Um, started there and then, you know, got my own, uh, I think for high school, well, high school graduation, I got two things. My dad bought me the acoustic guitar that I still use to this day. It's a Guild, uh, F50R. It's like the Eric Clapton model. That's a great, great acoustic. I've recorded that a lot of times. That actually sounds fucking awesome. Yeah. It's, it's big and kind of cumbersome and throws people off sometimes. They're like a jumbo and I'm like, yep, watch it. And then, you know, you put a mic on it. It's like, oh, wow. It's like, yeah, there, there it is. Kind of a happy accident. I just liked the way it looked, and I liked guilds a lot at the time. So jumped on that, and then with the rest of my like grad or my graduation presents were basically just you know checks and money and all this stuff. So I basically used all that to buy my first like kind of sort of interface. I bought Cubase because I had an old gateway PC, and then Did you, um, that, that, that's really funny. So, so you and I come from the same first DAW, DAW thing as yeah, Cubase yeah, Cubase the gateway. Yep, exactly. And then had a um, Echo Gina. I think it was an eight input, mm-hmm. uh, thing, I re- which I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't have preamps. You know, I had like the band's like live PA mixer that I, I think had direct outs. I'm not even sure. It was probably just so bad. <laughs> but kind of jumped into that, realized that I was not any good because I didn't really know what I was doing. And then as we made as cartel started making records like our first ep was done with matt goldman who you know obviously really really good yeah we did that in like four days and then when we got signed to militia came back and um did two other songs with him so we didn't really have the time to kind to see what he was doing all i remember is that he was using logic and i don't even know what console he was using or even if he was using one um but then when we did chroma that sort of you know, we spent 21 days at Tree Sound Studios in Atlanta with uh, Zach and Kenneth, who were great engineers. They hadn't really made their name as producers yet, but yeah, you you guys' record was kind of what brought them out to the forefront, if I recall. Yes, absolutely. Um, and that was kind of the moment where I started to realize how real things sort of got made. I bought Pro Tools right after that record came out, and because I, I, th- I believe I was using GarageBand to do all those demos, which you know obviously never made it to record, but that was pretty much the the beginning of the production career, really by just kind of peeping over their shoulders, and you know obviously at that point that was the most like full, you know obviously the best studio we had been in or I had been in um, at any point in time, and then being surrounded by the gear and it's kind of like seeing how it all went down because we actually had more time than. Like I said, with the EP, we only had a, a weekend, essentially. So it was a lot more eye-opening to how the process worked and then obviously getting into Pro Tools and you know starting to mess around with some plugins and kind of how things worked and basically just annoying the hell out of Zach and Kenneth to uh, be like, hey, man, I'm getting, you know, what do I do here? What's this? What's that? I'm getting this error. What is that error? You know, that sort of thing. And over the course of time, you know, into the second record with Cartel, I did all the demos and Pro Tools for the second record. And then that, I was a little more hands-on because I knew what, you know, I was kind of looking for in production. Like, okay, yeah, I'm going to make another track here, make another track. Still sort of rudimentary stuff, but more than I knew previous. And then with Cycles, that was probably the most I learned because I already had the background of like, all right, I know how Pro Tools works. I know all the, you know, the nuances and the workarounds and blah, blah, blah. You know, at that point in time, I'd actually kind of started nerding out on gear and what all that sort of thing. And 
I worked with that co-produced it with a guy named Ross Peterson, who is the in-house engineer for uh, Wind Up Records, who put out our third record. And Ross was the former assistant to Rich Costi. Oh wow! Yeah, so learned he actually assisted on the first first Muse record. Uh, well, not well the first. Well, yeah, the first one Costi did, which I think was Absolution. Correct. And then he had worked on John Mayer. Worked on I think heavier things. Not not room for squares, but heavier things is the one I think Rich Cossey did. I think you're correct. And because uh, he had, we I only know that because we had worked trying to figure out how to get the adrenaline pedal to work. <laughs> oh, nice. nice. <laughs> Which is a bummer because it sends MIDI like clock code to um, to the pedal, and you have like the only way it works correctly is it has to start on a bar. Which, yeah, it was it was weird to get it to work right. Which you know, when you're John Mayer, I'm sure you've figured it out way long before the but yeah i'd also have a full-time guitar tech so exactly yeah somebody who who knows how that stuff works a lot better than we did at the time but picked up a lot of tricks from ross and that was actually my first encounter with an api board and you know we spent four months making that record which is the longest we had ever spent so i learned quite a bit from ross over that course of time was actually comping my own vocals and tuning them in melodon that was my pretty much the first time I was really hands-on with it. And then from there, obviously, we did our in-stereo EP, which was all recorded by me, which was very hair-raising because we were DIY at the time. We were off the label, and the only way for us to make a record was for me to do it. <laughs> so really dove in there hard, and uh, we actually got Vance Powell to mix that record, the EP. So learned quite a bit from him, too, just kind of like, all right, man, you know, cut me straight. I know you, know, you obviously work with tremendous guys. I mean... You know, I, I had really heard of Vance Powell from the Rack and Tours record, and Joe Ciccarelli engineered that. So it's like, well, obviously I'm not in Ciccarelli land, dude. So uh, <laughs> let me know, let me know what I'm doing wrong. He's like, you're doing a lot of things right, and then here's where you could make some improvements. I'm like, cool. You know, obviously, you know, we were recording it at home. Like the drum recording was not the best situation. So you know, there were a lot of pitfalls just to or handicaps to start off with. But he was nice, and he definitely helped those tracks out a lot. Then. Collider ended up being the last uh, LP for Cartel. That was kind of the debut into I actually know what I'm doing land. <laughs> yeah, so we did that at Zach and Kenneth's current spot, which has like a is SSL uh, AWS 900, and they don't have a whole lot of outboard gear, but just enough to do it right. I mean, they had well at the time they only had two Neve 1073s. Now they've got four, so it was you know kick in and snare top for those, and all the SSL preamps and then uh, they had a, a silver face 1176 and uh, a 33609 yeah well that's, that's all great stuff distressors yeah yeah so I mean, you know that that was that was kind of where it all kind of kicked in nice so hearing this I, i'm kind of in despair so like one of the things that i think at least i've had a discussion of with friends over the years is that you know, you guys' debut album kind of eschewed in the punk phase where people could actually sing. And a lot of that was from your vocal performance on that, which I think is a really great vocal performance on that record. I'm curious if you would attribute some of what you were able to do be recording yourself for a while beforehand. Yeah, I mean, I definitely learned some things about pitch. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, Matt Goldman, I got to give him some credit because there was a moment when we were tracking that EP where I believe we were tracking The Ransom um, the actual song and there was a moment where I kind of like loosened up because I wasn't really nervous to record but then all of a sudden like everything kind of clammed up um, during 
that uh, vocal recording and he was like, Hey man, you know, like, it sounds like you're a little tired. I'm like, yeah, I don't really know what's going on, man. I think it's just some psychological, you know, stage fright kind of. And then there was one moment in the ransom, like the song where everything just kind of loosened up and I just can't remember exactly what I was doing, but it just happened. And I was like, and he was like, I don't know what you're doing in there, but this, you sound awesome right now. So whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. And it was like, aha, kind of like found, you know, my studio voice versus live when you're used to, you know, cause I mean, most of our experience and my experience as a singer at that point was on stage with a, you know, a 58 and a monitor that was not good. <laughs> so, you know, you sing too loud mm-hmm. and you're not really singing. You're just trying to do it as loud as you can so you can one hear yourself and then you know you're also jumping around with a band so that really helped and then subsequently doing the demos for chroma um with you know no front end and garage band you know the only way to get that to sound at all halfway decent is you know to try to sing properly and like self-compress you know with your voice instead of gear and then you know stacking like with harmonies and things like that i sort of you know, kind of learned how to sing in different ways for, you know, backup vocals versus a lead vocal and how to sort of EQ yourself a little bit to sort of get out of the way of the lead, but provide that melodic information to really make it stand out. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I say all that. <laughs> like, well, no, but it takes a particular talent to even hear that and react to that. But I think it's an interesting thing because it's like one of those pieces of advice I give to a lot of bands is like, just as you have to kind of band practice for live, you have to kind of studio practice. And some of that's getting used to headphones and learning how to adjust yourself for different things, just like you're talking about how you learn to self-EQ and self-compress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a remarkably different world. And then, you know, obviously with uh, later records for Cartel, we got in-ear monitors live, so I was able to sing live how I was used to singing in the studio without having to, you know, sing as loud as I can so I can hear myself. Um, So it really, and then, you know, various things down the line of actually, you know, referencing my vocal in the studio with other singers that I looked up to and how they sounded on record and how I sounded and like, well, it sounds like they're doing this versus what I'm doing and how do I incorporate that into what I'm doing without losing, you know, my signature or whatever. Yeah, it's it's always a, a learning process. Even now, like looking back, I'm like, ah, oh, man, I wish I could retract that. You know? Mm, but, yes, yes, that, that, that's always going to be there. Yeah, yeah, that never changes. I don't think. So you have your own studio. Can you tell me a bit about it? Yeah, so I'm in a place in Nashville called um, Pentaveret, which was borrowed from So I Married an Axe Murderer. The the dad in the family was talking about the Pentaveret running the world. Some sort of like pseudo Illuminati thing. It was pretty funny. But we actually spelled it wrong. It's supposed to have been pentaverate, like triumvirate, you know. But it's P-E-N-T-A-V-E-R-I-T is how they spell it. But it should have been A-T-E at the end. But, you know, what can you do? I didn't name it. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's four different rooms in here. Um, three sort of production rooms, mixing of which one is mine with an ISO booth for vocals. And then a main room, which is my buddy Bobby Hollins, that he tracks pretty much all of my drums for me because it's right down the hall um he's got a lot of cool stuff and 40 channel ssl e-series tons of outboard mostly mostly i wouldn't say boutique but like kind of off the wall stuff i mean you know he's got the distressors and you know the the typical stuff but he likes old vintage kind of one of a kind stuff i think he got a um his most recent edition was um there's a couple Altec Lansing, like old mm-hmm. pre- or yeah, no, I love that stuff. Yeah, it was he it was and it was modded to be like the um the uh EMI stuff from Abbey Road. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I I I had the pleasure of the cure record I worked on. We got to use one of those consoles and it was amazing. Oh yeah, dude, that has to be rad. 
Yeah, it's it's one of the few pieces of gear that like you know everybody's always looking for that piece of gear that uh, if you just put anything through it in your talent list, it still sounds good. Mm-hmm. That's as close as I've ever heard to it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's um, it's rad. And we normally record all um, I, I, the last drum recordings. I, I'm just trying to make sure before I say it. Uh, there was one one condenser used on the entire drum recording. It's all ribbons or. Oh wow! So otherwise, yeah, he's got a pair of coals for overheads, um, AEA stereo for room, um, a uh, AEA forty four for the front of kick, and then um, the only condenser was the outside kick mic, which I believe that was he borrowed a forty seven FET. Yeah, nice. That's the best one. Yeah, it, it kind of made us really angry that we didn't have one of those in studio. So we're all trying to figure out how we get that, how we get that for permanent usage because it's ridiculous yeah it's, it's just it's one of those classic pieces that once you put that on the front of the kick it's like ah okay i get why kick drums sound big yeah it's like oh there it is and and the coolest thing is he uses a um a sennheiser 441 for, uh-huh, great uh, for snare top mm-hmm. and good god like i i was like oh man because he's got his it, you know it's, it's always hard and interesting to me where you know, you hear a snare drum in a room, and you're like, "Sounds like a snare." And then you put mics on, and you're like, "Why doesn't it sound like a snare?" <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's, it's a tough balance learning how to make that relationship work. Yeah, yeah, and that 441 man, it just it just makes it work. It's it's crazy. Yeah, all my early records, that was my snare bottom um, oh, oh, yeah. or side, and I I, I really do you, you making it was funny because I feel like I faded from my brain for a while, and now I'm like, ah, oh, now I want it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. We call it the goosh because he uses a Rogers, um, a Rogers snare. I forget what model or anything. I'm not a drummer, so I'm not super keen on all that stuff. But the relationship of that snare with that mic, and I think it's a 609 on the bottom he uses. It's just, I don't know. For some reason, that's just like when you hear it in the in the control room, it's like, well, that's exactly what I want a snare to sound like for this project. So it just works. We tend to default to it probably a little too much, but, you know. When it works, it works. <laughs> totally. So, so you kind of answered a little, but um, so tell me about something that makes your studio unique. I would say pretty much the usage of all these ribbons, and um, w- with us, you know, like I've got a side production room that a modest yeah, amount of gear for what I'm doing. Since I do some mixing, but it's all like kind of inboard outboard. I like to call it because I use uh, Apogee DA16X uh, mm-hmm. output with uh, Dangerous Two Bus for Great piece, something. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, next thing I need to do is get a, a mix bus compressor, like outboard. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm kind of running it all through the Apollo console, like bringing it back in and using some of those killer plugins um, for mix bus. But I, I think the most unique thing about our studio is that you know the guys we have in here, they all come from different backgrounds, but we're all pretty much into the same thing and trying to do the same sort of work. So we all work together very well and a lot of talent in here and I'm not not necessarily including myself but that's you know when it comes down to it gears gear but the people make the difference and that's what I like about this place. That's a, that's rad. What's one of the coolest pieces of gear your studio has? It's uh, it's probably like my personal or just the building in general. Oh, whatever you feel like. I really dig this so bobby has this ampex it, you know is used in a tape machine oh the, the converted mic pre thing yeah yeah oh, dude those are so rad yeah I've, i i i used one of those a few years back and it was so good dude, yeah I mean, that's that's essentially what we use for the front of kick which ends up mm-hmm. a lot of the times kind of being the drum sound um because it's with the aea 44 ribbon with that in front of mm-hmm. it it's kind of like well 
if it's rock or anything sort of, you know, alternative leaning, it just sounds so good because the saturation on it's just like, I mean, you can't, you can't buy that unless you <laughs> have yeah. that gear. It's exactly what you're looking for. Yeah. And so for people, since we kind of glazed it over, um, old mono tape machines from Ampex would have this amazing tube front end that you can convert into a mic pre and a lot of, I mean, I shouldn't say a lot, but there's a, a good amount of them out there, maybe a hundred or 200 or something. And they are just insane. Mm-hmm. So tell me about what instruments you play. You kind of go, so you don't play drums. Can you tell me about what, what you uh, normally end up playing? Guitar player by trade initially. I ended up all of the records for Cartel other than Chroma, I tracked the bass for. Uh-huh. I can play a, pretty much anything with a string enough to like figure a way to write a song or something like that. But as far as what I would actually be comfortable playing in studio, which mm. is what I consider actually being able to play something. Guitar, bass, pretty much synthesizer key stuff like I, I know music theory pretty well mm. well enough to know what i'm pressing but will i call myself a piano or a keyboard no no <laughs> I not. Uh, i'm not one of those players but you know with the glory of pro tools and punch and midi editing i can definitely fake it very well <laughs> and singing obviously so we like to explain like with songwriting and how producers get involved if you have one side of it being like steve albini who will like just kind of comp tell you like whether you thought the take was good or not but not get involved in the song right and then you have a john feldman who rewrites the songs totally for bands <laughs> where do you see yourself on that scale and how do you how much do you like to get involved as a producer i i probably like philosophically lie a little bit more in the steve albini region attitude wise and like what i'm willing to do more not in the feldman land like i'm not going to rewrite your record I've, i i love writing i love it more for myself because i don't have to you know worry about what anybody else is trying to come you know get across in the song but i don't like to do a lot of songwriting with the bands unless it needs it or they ask for it um just because i I think that's you know if i wanted to make a record i'll just make a record um and when trying to impose what i think is you know good songwriting theory or any of that or structure it kind of gets in the way now if there's something like obvious where i'm like hey man do you really want to say that in a song like you know i I get i get what you're trying to do but does it really you know like are you if you're trying to be a pop band you can't really get away with saying this sort of thing you know (laughs) gotcha Um, so yeah no it's um it's somewhere in between i kind of like to to play it however like my usual theory and what I end up telling bands as we work together is like I want to I want to become a, a member of the project for while we're working on it to where it's you know my job a role in the band the most most of it obviously is in the you know engineering it and making sure that the band's ideas are coming across the way they had at least told me to begin with but more so you know like some there's some members of a band that you know kind of sit back and just add their parts and it's you know you kind of underestimate their their input because they're really kind of subtly changing things in their dynamics they're adding and then there's some members that are really hands-on and i kind of look and see where the void is and what what's needed most in the project and you know hopefully obviously for me the easiest thing is just to hit record and say that sounds amazing like you're killing it that's my favorite thing because i just get to witness cool stuff happening but then you know there's been times where i've gone in there and be like you know, hey, we need to take this part and move it, done some arranging. Other times where I'm like, this part kind of kills it. We need to, uh, we need to, you know, do something that is more, you know, complementary to the rest of the things going on in the music and everywhere kind of in between. Down to vocals, you know, melody. I, I'd probably say 
the thing I end up being most vocal about, pardon the pun, is vocals. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because, you know, obviously being a singer, I, I feel like that's my... Forte or something? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Forte is a perfect word. And that's what I hear the most in. I mean, guitar playing for sure, too, but um, the, I think the hardest thing to communicate uh, in a studio is is with a vocalist and like trying to tell them how to sing it. And, you know, you can't always verbalize it. Uh, with words and even singing mm. back to them like not ah more ah like, yeah yeah it, it really is like one of those things like i think about it so much of like the struggle of like you hear that somebody's doing something wrong you know how you would support it but you can't always show that person like how to support it in their own body if they haven't had that epiphany yet yeah yeah and so sometimes it's you know we're in the booth and we're cutting and you know like it just isn't sounding the way that I know they want it to sound and, you know, bring them out and show it to them. And they're like, yeah, man, what am I doing? It's like, all right, we're going to hit pause here and we're going to step outside or go somewhere. And I'm going to talk to you about like, you know, pitch placement and like, where, where are you thinking about it? And like, learn all these rules just to forget about them. Cause if you're thinking while you're trying to sing, it's not going to happen. Right. And there's all, you know, it, it, that's the, that's the nuance to it. It's like, how much do I tell them? Because I don't want them to think while they're in there, but I also want them to be purposeful in what they're doing to some degree. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. I like that purposeful. Yeah. Cause it's different with every singer. Like some guys it's like, you know, it's totally technically incorrect and um, you know, they're a little pitchy or like their dynamic is all off, but it sounds awesome. Yes. You know, it's like perfect for the thing. And I feel like, you know, in modern times and and just the world of music as it is, like we tend to kind of homogenize vocals to a certain degree because it's all like compressed just the right way. And, oh, you got to have this dynamic and you got to sing on pitch. So we're going to auto-tune it or melodyne it and this, that, and the other. And then you end up, you know, kind of taking what's unique and special about the artist away because you tried to make it fit inside of this, you know, modern paradigm of what recording should sound like. And and that is a really tough balance because sometimes it's like, well, you know, this kind of gruff band, if they get a good polish, maybe they'll go further. But then sometimes you polish that really gruff band and it takes away what's special about them. Absolutely. I mean, that's what I I really like that. I mean, I know it's probably, you know, sort of industry fodder probably by now, but like the Steve Albini letter that he wrote to Nirvana before they did in utero. Yes. Yes. That's so good. Yeah, it's just, you know, a record should only take two weeks. You shouldn't, you know, it's like all these things where you're like, yes, that's the way you want it to be. And then you end up spending six weeks on a record and auto-tuning everything. It's just, it's so funny how much everybody wants it to be that way. But you realize that it's a pretty rare thing to be able to do that anymore because we've made so much technology accessible. Whereas, you know, when they were doing those records, it's like, what do you mean, dude? Nope, redo it. We got, you know, we get it in one take or we don't, you know, it's that sort of thing. Obviously, they had punch and all these other things going on with the tape, but it's uh, it's interesting to to see that happen. Yeah, but I think that there's also like a nuance that often gets left out of that conversation, which is that there are a lot of bands that aren't great bands yet, and sometimes what you do with them in the studio gets them to be a much better band. And then there's some bands where like I always like to say it's like Eddie Murphy and the Golden Child when he has to just pick up the water and walk back across the room it's like all right there's gonna be some obstacles but really you're just carrying water like you don't need to do any back flips you don't need to do anything crazy just carry the water and don't fall yeah exactly so like i, I think it is a funny thing but yeah i wish every band was prepared enough and you're not compensating for the fact that the bassist uh didn't learn their parts at all because they were busy playing fallout 4 for a week instead of doing it <laughs> really that didn't just happen to me um but uh 
like, you know, it'd be nice if they were all Nirvana and dedicated to it. Yeah, I mean, I think back, you know, when it was more of a performance art being in the studio and less like, oh, yeah, man, we can just, you know, we can just hit pause and then come back tomorrow and we just leave everything set up. It's like, no, they just did it. Like, you know, watching Sound City, I think, would probably be really eye-opening for most new artists who's like, wait, wait, ho- hold on. They they track that live? It's like, yeah, <laughs> that's how they used to do everything. They didn't have multi-tracks. I mean, we've made it easier, but at the same time, more complicated you know, as technology has progressed. Totally. So you kind of hit on that you often go pretty hard on the vocals, but what do you see yourself bringing to records most often? I I hate to use a physics word, but there's vector. Okay. Yeah. You know, where it's like there's velocity, but also direction. Mm -hmm. You know, velocity kind of goes into momentum and stuff like that. But I feel like sometimes people just, you know, they write songs and they record them and then they put them out. And yes, that's the process at its most, you know, basic form of, you know, (laughs) uh, description. But I feel like a lot of times people don't necessarily go into the studio with some sort of, you know, purpose to say like, all right, we're making this record, but not only am I trying to capture these songs and record them, but I'm also trying to accomplish something that's, you know, more ethereal, more abstract than just what we're listening to. It's like an emotion or things like that. And, you know, not all records are going to be that. Like, do I think Justin Bieber is trying to, you know, change the world with his music? No, but well, they're doing some cool things, you know? Well, but I think that there there was, I, <coughs> I, I like to call this like a hypothesis. I think you're making a fantastic point that like, I think this is like one of the things that does separate the men from the boys is like, do you have a hypothesis and an idea of what you should be bringing to music? Because I do think, you know, after working with a lot of artists over the years, those are the musicians who who end up mattering is the ones who have like a contemplation of what they're doing. And even this new Justin Bieber record, it's like there is kind of a, a thing going through it. It's not like big abrasive dubstep sounds. It's kind of like a lot of space in the mix and there's a common thread through a lot of it. It's more introspective lyrics and not baby. There is like kind of a thing to it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I feel like especially with this new Justin Bieber record, like I've, I've finally like taken off the, fuck justin bieber hat that i had you know it was it was not necessarily him you know it's just more the 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 everything surrounding that you know because he's obviously very talented you can't take that away from it It it's just like baby 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 hmm, really (laughs) you know like come on you know i know the beatles did something similar but it was the beatles and they did it a different way but yeah you know now listening to some of these things like i heard that um where are you now that yes. song, like I heard that on the radio, like randomly, and I didn't know it was Justin Bieber. I just kind of caught same a brief, yeah. I, I just caught a brief like section of it. And it was when that breakdown, that do 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 do, like that little. I was like, man, that's cool. Like, and yeah. that's on that's on pop radio. Like, this is neat. And then I was sitting there trying to listen. Like, I was driving. I was like, I really want to hear this song. And I was like, what is this? And then it came on the radio, and I was like, oh yeah. And then they did a bumper for it. And it was like, that's Justin Bieber. Where are you now? I'm like, oh man. <laughs> Like I got, I just got trolled by Justin Bieber. You know, like that's perfect. Like now, well, I'm done hating because that's awesome. Like that totally got me off. You know, there, there was an, like one of those internet memes of like that feeling when you find out the song with the cool recorder hook uh, is actually Justin Bieber. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like oh man. But yeah, you were making a really good point that like it's good to have a contemplation about what you're trying to accomplish in the studio. Yeah, it's. 
because you know, like I said, there's because especially here in Nashville, you know, there, there's recordings going on every day. They're tracking records every day. Uh, you know, c- countless country demo sessions happening all at once, and you know, those are all cool. And there's a, a ton of talent and a lot of good engineering, a lot of cool sounds and things happening. Great songwriting is all that. But like you know, not to discount what they're doing because obviously you know Luke Bryan's terrible shit that he puts out means something to somebody, and I don't take anything away. It doesn't mean anything to me, mm-hmm. other than a reason to change the channel, or, <laughs> but um, or respect the songwriters who had the vision to be like, yes, this is going to be just terrible enough to make a lot of money, <laughs> and you know that's cool. I, I you know it's just not my vibe. So I, I if it's somebody else's vibe, that's awesome, but. Yeah, you know, for for me, it's like let's do something that's like that, that that means something. Like, yeah, you might have twelve songs right now, but maybe that twelfth song isn't that great, and the song you're going to write in two months is going to be that song that makes the record, you know, go from yeah, it's pretty good to holy shit. Have you heard this? Because I feel like you know a lot of people discount. You know, like oh, it's just a deep cut. It's an album track. I'm like, yeah, but I mean, think about those records that are just so great to you that, you know, had that one song that is a deep cut and album track, had that song not been on there and it had been another single, let's say, mm-hmm. how would that record make you feel now? Like, would you have missed it? You know, would it, does it make it more special or less? But, you know, it's like all those things to think about. Like, maybe, maybe there is that one song that just makes all this come together. And, you know, I try to think of things, but you know, it's like a uh, okay computer. What if apparently Android? Yeah. And you know, you, you were talking about smashing Republicans before. One of the points I met, like I was having a, a similar discussion. It's like, you know, it's like, I find so funny is now that mayonnaise, a song that wasn't even a single is kind of the song that people really seem to push now from them uh, these days. And it's like, that's just the song that I think really did encapsulate what that record was. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, it, that's what I always try to look for. And I mean, maybe it's to to my own fault of like, you know, especially modern day, like, you know, everybody's trying to make a, you know, we're also, we're all trying to make great records, but we're also trying to make a living at the same time. So that commercial aspect can't, you know, that little devil on your shoulder can't necessarily be ignored all the time. But, you know, that's what I try to try to bring to some bands and be like, you know, hey man, like, let's try to write something important, you know, like, and even if you don't succeed, like, it's more about the fact that we were trying to get there and maybe we got somewhere a little better than where it was going to be to begin with. I think that that's a very big thing in creativity is that you have to aim a little higher, even if you're going to not be Icarus and get the sun and have your wings burned off. Going a little higher is going to usually do a, do something better for than just aiming for mediocre. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and sometimes mediocre is cool. It's like, nah, man, I want this to sound shitty and just rad and loud and in your face and wrong. It's like, okay, cool, sweet. <laughs> you know. So what's a common mistake you see bands do before getting into the studio? I think what a lot of bands do sometimes is they have this idea in their head of what they want it to sound like and it's so hard to make that idea actually come across the speakers that, you know, it's like, "No, nah, man, it needs to sound just like this." Or they get too attached to like, "Yeah, dude, I want my guitar to sound like Johnny Marr in, you know, Ask Me." And it's like, "Yeah, but dude, you're playing like a you know the song sounds like iron and wine like how you know like i get that you want it to sound like that but this isn't that song you know i think sometimes you get too attached to you know references or things like that without you know thinking about well we want to make something unique here we're not covering you know, yeah, a song. I, you, so. know, you know, I, I like we we this this has come up on the podcast before. I think with the, the thing we got to is like too specific is sometimes the thing of like I and I've fallen into this too of like when I've mixed records 
And like, let's say I put on Jimmy Eat World, Bleed America. I tend to, every time I did that to myself, I'd like fail so badly and the record would be the wrong vibe and like the mix would suck and I'd have to remix it again because I was too specific. Whereas if I put on like three, four things I like and get it in that area of what I like, that usually will be a better thing. And I think that that's like really what it is, is some people get too specific with what they want in their head. Yeah, no. And then you spend time, you know, you spend an hour and a half, two hours chasing down a guitar sound where you could have spent that time tracking and getting the performance because by the time you do get a sound that you're like, or you settle on Mm -hmm. something, uh, which is more often than not what happens, you're like, yeah, that's good enough. And then you're bummed out because all your energy has just been spent trying to get a sound rather than just rip, you know? So that we always made fun of ourselves for was like, you know, early on in making our records, we'd be like, nah, man, like, the hi-hat just isn't loud enough or it's too loud. And, you know, then obviously, you know, that hi-hat's picking up some other things. So, you know, you turn one thing down, you turn something else down inadvertently. So you got to turn that up, you know, you get that whole, because you don't understand the relationship of, you know, levels, especially dealing with the drum kit when you're, you know, first starting out. So uh, Zach and Kenneth actually said something funny that has stuck with me the entire time, especially doing mixes for bands now where like little things come in and I'm like, hey man, you know, I will totally turn that down for you, but it sounds like you are getting really, really specific. And I'll just say like, name right now your favorite hi-hat sound you've ever heard. Mm. And I'll, you know, always they're just like, oh yeah, hi-hat, I, I've never paid attention to a hi-hat in my life. I'm like, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. I mean, not to say that it shouldn't be turned down, but I'm just saying. I'm not saying, I'm yeah. just saying. Well, yeah. I, I think that's the case of uh, instead of losing the forest from the trees, that's losing the branches from the forest. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so what's a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process? Uh, you know, I actually um, just wrote with the band, the a band named Coin. I don't know if you're familiar um, indie band. They're based out of Nashville, although they're not from here originally. We were we didn't record, but in the writing session, it it, it was very it was, you know it's the most famous or successful band I've written with in person. The thing that struck me is how you know it, it was that vector thing I was mm-hmm. talking about earlier. Like they they had a sense of you know urgency that they needed to do something spectacular and then also knew how they wanted to get to that so like you know they were very some people would call it picky but being a writer myself and being an artist as well like i saw in them like yeah you're just not settling and i think that's important is you know being able to ride that balance because you know sometimes settling is what you have to do even though it sounds like a bad word it's like no man like it's just it's cool like you could do a million different things but there's only one that's actually going to happen so it might not be that exact sound you're going for but you know that's kind of getting off base but, no, but this is a, this is a great really, point yeah no, I, just, I think they they really knew what they wanted and they were very adamant that they get that i mean you know a songwriting session in nashville usually you know three or four hours and you got a song for better hmm. or for worse yeah well, that's and why they call it a factory it, yes <laughs> exactly so we got two days and the very end of that second day we managed to finally get the last line we were looking for and it was it it was kind of stressful because it was like god we've been beating ourselves over the head and like you know we've tossed out 20 good lines that you know don't necessarily you know matter to the ultimate scheme of thing it's not you know it's it's not a dylan Mm -hmm. record or something like that but it's because we're writing a breakup song you know it's like you know, that hopefully is going to be on top 40. So how, you know, deep can it actually get? But we're just chasing something and not really giving up until you got something that really made you go, yeah, that's so much better. And I think that's that's something that's really good for a band to do is like, 
have a purpose and not just be like, yeah, I know my part, but not try to push the envelope and be like, yeah, I can, I can do that better. That's a, I, dude, I, I love that. That is a really, really great way of putting it. And I think people try to say that a lot. And that was really eloquent. Um, what happens when you and a band disagree about something? I let the band do whatever they want to do. <laughs> um, for better, or for worse, I, I, I haven't come across, you know, a big time disagreement yet. There have been things where I'm like, well, I wouldn't do that, but you know, okay. You know, especially some things melodically, I'm like, well, you know, you're throwing in an accidental there and I don't, I was like, well, it's, it's cool. I dig it. Like, I don't think this is going to be what you're actually looking for in the end. And then they're like, no, I mean, that's just the way I sing it. So like, don't, don't change it. I'm like, I can move it in Melodyne. You don't have to do that. You know? And they're like, no, I'm like, all right, cool. And you know, every time I come across the part, it's like, (laughs) you know, like it doesn't quite work, but you know, I get why it's cool, but you know, it's part of the like differentiating between artiste and producer who's supposed to, you know, look after their ultimate, you know, best interests at the end of trying to actually sell something. But no, I, you know, being this part of what I pride myself on is I want the artist to feel like they came in here and used me as an instrument to make a record and that I, you know, was just the guy pressing the buttons and making it happen, but, you know, kind of being a little transparent mm-hmm. to where the sounds actually come through. Cause you know, there's a lot of producers that they have a sound and it's going to sound like that no matter who mm-hmm. they record, which, you know, I admire that it's just like, yeah, their, their, you know, influence is so imprinted upon the music that they make that you can tell that they produced it. And then there's also guys like, you know, think about Andy Wallace. It's like, yeah, man, you did Slayer mm-hmm. and you also did Jeff Yeah, Buckley. and run, like, and then run DMC. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So you're just like, whoa, okay. Like, I don't really know how you wear that many different hats, but that's mm-hmm. cool. So, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think I try to do a little bit more of that and um, just kind of stay out of the way. So with that, you know, the artist wins. Nice. So let's get to know uh, some of the way you feel about some modern production things. Uh how do you feel about amp, amp simulators in your productions? I have wanted amp simulators to work for a very long time because just making demos or anything like that, um, you know, it's it's so convenient just to be able to stick your guitar into your interface and have a great guitar sound. Um, and there are certain situations where I think it has worked well. I mean, I've used Guitar Rig uh, 4 was the last one I used. I haven't even used 5, so it might be better than it was. But, you know, it can sound a little harsh, so you have to do some pretty good subtractive EQ there to get it, get rid of some of that stuff. You know, I have the Apollo uh, Vintage Amp Room, and it sounds okay. It, it sounds like a guitar. It doesn't not sound like a guitar, so that's all right. But um, the only thing that I've heard that actually worked in a production was uh, the Scuffum Eskier. Oh, I don't even know that. Yeah, it's... Uh, I, 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 this guy I wrote with here in Nashville, um, he had it. And, it, you know, at first when you hear it, it's, it's kind of that Mesa Boogie, like, super gain mm-hmm. thing. But um, So it kind of sounds a little weird, but when you hear it in the track, it's like, that actually sounds like that. It sounds like a Mesa hmm. Boogie. You know, like, they're not trying to emulate that because they've got... I think four different ant models on there, but you know, there's this one guy I was working with that uh, was going for the, you know, the pop punk super chugga chugga sort of thing. And it worked, it worked great. I mean, I, I used it as a layering tool with doubles. Um, but for the most part, I stay away from them unless I'm making a demo and I don't, yeah. you know, want to rig up an amp and do all that. How about uh sample drums? Uh, there's a guy in the studio actually who, um, he programs drums and he, He's fooled me a bunch of times where I thought, holy shit, 
like that's a great drum sound he's like yeah i spent a couple hours programming <laughs> it i'm like hey, are you kidding me you know i think it can be it can be really good uh it can also be really bad it just depends on how much you're gonna how much time you're gonna spend on it and how much knowledge you have of like the dynamics of a drummer and how a drummer would play if you can do that then you can make something pretty re- pretty realistic now that's the programming side as far as using samples and like a mix and something like that sometimes man it just it just helps i mean I, I would rather never have to use a sample. In fact, I was mixing something today. It's the first project I've done. Sorry, second project I've done that I haven't uh, used samples in some way. But it's, you know, a lot of the times when I've used samples is because, you know, the bands I've worked with up till now um, didn't really have a budget. So we did, you know, a super low budge way of tracking or had to track really quick. So didn't necessarily spend, you know, we did eight songs in a day versus, you know, really spending time being like, you know what, you're playing it great, but I just don't like the way that rack tom sounds. Like, let's let's tune it a little bit, you know? Not getting to spend the time dealing specifically with the sounds, because time is money, and bands don't really have a lot of that nowadays. You know, sometimes you have to fall back on the samples, or even just using, you know, like, uh, Steven Slate Trigger, just to kind of blend some stuff in that you're not necessarily getting on the front end with the recording. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. Um, as long as it's not overdone. I mean, some bands, you know, like a you know, super pop punk record, or... Uh, metal or anything like that, you know, you need that really just, you know, that kick sound that sounds like that and that snare sound that sounds like a shotgun. Or, you know, like there's things that are kind of intrinsic to the genre that you need to stay with. And unless you're a killer engineer and have a great setup and spend the time getting the drum sounds, I mean, you might need the samples. So I'm, I don't I don't dislike drum samples as much as I um, dislike the, the amp simulation. But there's also some, some really cool stuff like loops that you can build with... Uh, with some sample stuff. So I think it's gotten a lot better than what it used to be. A hundred percent agreed. Um, how about pitch correction? So some people, some people just need it. That's it. That is what it is. Um, they can get the performance and that's great. And they perform the hell out of it and they give you all the vibe in the world, but eh, it's, 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 it's a little too sharp or it's a little too flat. I'm, you know, from being a singer in a band that was, you know, lying in the pop realm a little bit like obviously no stranger to what tuning can do and there's some songs where i haven't had to use tuning on myself and there's some songs that i did it just depends on how rehearsed i was or whether or not my ear was right that day it just kind of depends but i will say that 99 percent of the time i use melodyne because as a singer and having edited my own voice a lot I fancy myself really good at the tuning being totally transparent where some people don't ever even notice that their voice got mm-hmm. tuned. Um, even to the fact where some people were like, yeah, man, I wish you'd throw some tuning on the voice. I'm like, all right, <laughs> Nice. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so it's like, maybe I didn't go far enough. But I, I like Melodyne because you can actually work with the, the waveform and, you know, for those familiar with it, like, you know, you have the pitch line going through the, the wave and being able to see that and really kind of, you know, understand that, like autotune kind of locks it in it's a different it's a yeah. different thing um the melodyne it, it kind of tries to lock it to the center pitch but you know when you go through and record drums and you record bass and you record guitars and it's all live and you know unless you're dealing with like you know synthesizer sounds or you know midi keyboards or something that is giving you a true pitch those things aren't dead on the pitch you know it's a little flat or a little sharp or that chord you know the g-string was a little out you know so finding that zone where the vocals sound in tune sometimes i mean there was one song that just the way the guitar player was playing everything was a little mm-hmm. sharp so you know if i had just gone through and used autotune or melodyne even and just pitch corrected on the scale to you know pitch drift whatever it, it would have made it um more wrong it yeah. been flat 
yeah so it's like being able to go in there and actually like you know move it and hear all the audio at that specific second you know and hear it is like uh, get it right in tune and there you go that's fun for me plus with being able to do all the like the the harmonies and creating vocals and stuff like that it can be fun so i, I kind of use it as an instrument um i, I do like auto-tune Sometimes. Some singers don't work in Melodyne. It's a weird thing. I, I, it's one of those things. I, I, I'm like one of those people. I, I, it sounds like you're a science nerd too. There has to be oh, a yeah. scientific reason this doesn't work. I really want to know, but just some people. I can never figure out what's the correlation. But like some people don't work in Melodyne, and then you have to go to Auto Tune. I remember reading an article on Jimmy World Chase This Light, and they were saying how he didn't work in uh, Melodyne. Huh. That's interesting. I would think with his voice, it would be, you know, a little more like middle of the road tonally that would work in Melodyne, but maybe he's doing something, maybe he's doing something, you know, cause he does have that like tight, like vibrato thing in his voice. That's unique to him that maybe that, that could be throwing it off. Yeah, Or it's the operator just wasn't feeling it. Who knows? But also true. Just like, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm just going to use autotune now, <laughs> which the thing I do like about autotune, it has this, like, has this, it, like it has its own sound. Mm-hmm. You know, like it has a, a creamy sort of mid, like it smooths it out. Like, and obviously with pitch, it's doing that, but it, I don't know. Sometimes it can be really cool. Yeah. I, 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 I go back and forth between Melodyne Waves Tune and Auto Tune. I tend to find Waves Tunes a little bit better for when uh, it's like dance and people really do want that more locked to the grid pitch thing. But, uh, you know, it, it, it is a thing. They all have their flavors. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's cool because it gives you something different to work with rather than you know sometimes you're just not feeling it it's like yeah i know this la 2a plugin is what i always use and it sounds good but ah just not doing it for me right now you know totally so do you master your own records no um i i tried to master something for somebody and you know figured like okay you know in theory i know what mastering does um and like you know, somewhat of a little bit of signal chain stuff that you can use to you know get like a you know a generic sort of you know, mastering thing going on. And I just ended up not liking it. And and I I never knew what I was doing with mixing while uh, Cartel was making records up until probably four years ago. Um, and then kind of started to get into it. Like, all right, now how can I you know because I was trying to mix my own demos and stuff like that, try to make them sound good. And like, have picked up a lot of tips. And I realized that you know with the mixing world it's just as much of a different discipline as, as production and engineering is. Um, it's, it's, you might as well like just, you know, quit a program and start a new program. And that's, that's your mixing world because it's, you know, while they do obviously encounter each other a lot, um, cause you know, a poorly engineered, uh, recording, there's no amount of mixing knowledge that can save that. Vice versa, you're gonna have a great engineer. You know, Joe Ciccarelli engineered this, and you try to go in, you can you can fuck it up. I feel like in the last year and a half, out of like five years of really trying to hone in some mixing skills, that I kind of finally got to the point where it's like, oh, that's it. That's what I've been missing the whole time. To where I actually feel confident mixing records and like being able to have fun with it now instead of it being like a stressful like, oh, I hope I don't screw this up sort of thing. As much trepidation and hesitation that I had towards mixing, it's tenfold with mastering. So like I I don't you know, there's a reason why guys are just mastering engineers and that's what they've made their money and their name doing for, you know, decades. And I would, I would like to leave it to them and, and, and pay them for their services. <laughs> Very nice. How long do you like to take to work on a song if you have your way with it? Uh, usually it's about three days per song is what we try to budget in the time. Um, 
Is that with mixing or without? It's without. Uh, and normally with mixing, I like to I like to kind of do like the basics, get general static balances, and you know have a nice good you know mix compression going on, and kind of everything sitting in a, a nice general zone of what sounds good, and then walk away from it because I feel like all that energy and like you know it's kind of two different hats. You're looking at it more like the science guy, where like oh that 200 hertz that's just killing me. I got to pull that out, or like the ring in that snare is giving me shit, or you know. I got to DS the overheads or something, you know, like something like that. There's always like that technical, like, you know, getting it right. And then I like to come back to it with, you know, because I've spent all my energy working on, you know, getting it technically correct or where, you know, it's not going to kill the listener's ears or kill my ears for that matter. And then um, come back to it and have the creative fun. We're like, all right, I'm going to add some cool reverb and I'm going to sit here and click through some presets and maybe adjust my own stuff. Or like, I know exactly what I'm going to do here, or add some snare, or, you know, chorus or whatever, you know, kind of go in and have fun with the effects and then do all like my automation and stuff like that. I, tr- I try to kind of turn it into two separate sessions and then, and then print from there. So sometimes I can do that in the same day where I'll do a couple songs in the morning and you know, not spend a whole lot of time, you know, worrying over like, oh, yeah, but that one little frequency is killing me. It's like, yeah, but does the song work, you know? Nice. That's cool. Yeah, I try to get two or three busted out and go to lunch, you know, do something else and then come back and then look at it and say, all right, now let's have some fun. So that I, I feel like that, you know, doesn't burn me out. That's because it can happen real easily. I, I understood. Tell me one of the best moments you've had in the studio. It was probably with Cartel's second record, uh, a song called Wasted, that uh, was a crazy, crazy labor. Um, if we weren't on a major label and didn't have that budget, it would have sounded different. I mean, the parts would have all been the same, but it was it was something kind of just ridiculous. I mean, we had a drum line, a high school, well, Zach and Kenneth, they produced that record. They had a buddy who was actually the, uh, the marching band instructor for Brookwood High School in Atlanta. He brought in... Because my demo that I had made was all on Reason, so it had like the marching snare and all this stuff. Like, so pretty much what you hear on that song is just replaced parts of the demo that I made. Uh, I did all the string arrangement and stuff like that. So we had a drum line come in and like play all that stuff live. Um, then we had the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra came in and did all the strings for that record. Wow! And that was. That was crazy. I mean, cause being a trumpet player, like that song obviously has trumpet and some French horn stuff going on. So like, I had some knowledge of the way that worked and with music theory, you know, obviously learning, you know, where the violin register and how that stuff works and blah, blah, blah. That's, you know, that's something that was interesting to me, but I was also like, you know, we had done the parts. I had like sent the individual tracks to the, uh, the conductor who was putting it all together, the arranger, who was actually doing the sheet music and everything because I wasn't going to do that. But you know, she came in and all of a sudden, you know, it was like, you know, being introduced to her. And I was like, oh, shit, like, you actually know what you're doing. Like, you're, you you play, like, classical music live. And, like, this isn't classical music at all. Like, you probably think this is stupid. And so I was really worried. I was just like, oh, man, like, what if I didn't put the cello in the right part, you know, like, in you know, it can't be played because it's the wrong register, you know, this, that. And, you know, just thinking, like, oh, man, how bad did I mess this up? You know, just trying not to say anything, trying not to let on that I, oh God, I just realized I actually don't know what I'm doing to some degree. (laughs) You know, sitting in the back of the control room, just kind of like arms crossed, legs crossed, like, you know, covering my face a little bit, just like, oh, please turn out. And then, you know, this is the first time the uh, musicians had even seen the sheet music. So it's like, 
well, I wonder if somebody's going to be like, hey, um, what the hell? You know? <laughs> nice. Yeah. Then, you know, they sit, you know, they kind of run through some bars and ask some questions like, yeah, is this a, is a quarter rest or half rest or what, you know, what's going on? She's answering some questions and then they just play the whole thing. And it was like my first experience with the session musicians. And then obviously it's the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. So they're good um, as an understatement. And they just rip it and we stacked it like two or three times and hearing it all come back and it was like, holy hell, like that's so cool. And then she came afterwards. She's like, yeah, you actually like, you know, I was expecting a lot of times with rock bands and they do these string arrangements. They don't know what they're doing. Like you actually got it pretty as close as I've seen. I was like, right on. She's like, there is this one part though, like violins can't actually play that note. <laughs> so I would suggest that uh, you leave it with your, uh, your string program there. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> She's like, don't worry, we did that with a Beyonce song. And like, you just said you recorded a Beyonce. This is awesome. That's so, killer. That was definitely the coolest thing is just to witness like that level of musicianship and um, have it be something that I actually wrote. It was like, yeah, this is awesome. And then like, you see the check that they wrote for that oh, yeah. session. You're like, oh my God. Like, well, no wonder it sounds good. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, how, about, really- how about one of the worst and what you learned from it? Oh, uh, God. Uh, <laughs> I, I love that the common thing with this question, too, is the oh. <laughs> yeah, it's which one do I pick? Mm. Um, I mean, there's not, there, you know, most most of my experiences um, have been have been very good. Probably. Well, actually, this is this is the worst. And it's, it's not like so much as in like a oh, like that sucks. Like it kind of ruined something like it was totally fine. But for the band in the bubble thing with the second record. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they wanted um, they wanted us to try to get like some New York um, street musicians or something like that to come in and play on our record. Mm-hmm. And we had this. We tried to figure out like first of all what's going to work and you know, that you know isn't something we're already playing or is it this you know guitar virtuoso guy that's sitting out on the street like what's what what are we going to bring in and we saw some of the auditions and they had picked you know like three or four people to come in there and basically like audition for the song and like figure out a part and we had this guy come in the first guy that came in was an accordion player and he crushed it i mean just absolutely crushed it and we we're like that is so cool like you really know what you're doing he's like yeah he's like i played in a polka band for like 20 years and like like you know we we just kind of free form like jam for you know hours for a set i'm like well, that's rad i didn't, wouldn't even know where to begin with that that's cool man thanks for coming in and so we're like oh man they, they actually really did their due diligence they they got some really good players like this is gonna be cool even if we don't use it at least it's cool to hear what this sounds like and then this harmonica player came in and we were like, yeah, this is going to be rad. This guy's going to know exactly how to do it. And it was the hardest thing in the world I've ever had to experience. Because, you know, like, <laughs> the harmonica is not hard to make a note happen or even tune. Mm-hmm. It was very hard for this guy to figure out what actually worked. Like, I think we were in, like, the key of G or something, and he was trying to play an F. And he was like, no, man, it's just like, you know, it's just a different kind of jazzy thing. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, you know. <laughs> like, hey, man, why don't you why don't you try the the G the G major there? You know, why don't you try that? And he's like, No, man, I really like this. I I really like this. I think you know, like if it's gonna be my part on the record, I'm like, dude, you're you're not gonna be on the record. You play, <laughs> so, you know, like we can't we can't pitch correct this to make it work. You know, because you're not even playing in the right you know scale for that matter. Um, so <laughs> he was very adamant about making it work and. Mm-hmm. We were like, oh, hey, cool, man. You know, thanks for coming in. It was nice to meet you. And he's like, 
no man, no, let, let me lay down a harmony on that. I think we can, you know, really stack it up. I'm like, no man, I think we're good. I think we're good. You know, we can, we can make it work, you know? <laughs> and he just would not have it. And yeah, yeah he actually showed up at a show. Oh, yeah, like the next New York show we played. And he's like, I bought the record and I didn't hear my part on there. I was like, yeah, you know, we need a different direction. He's like, not cool, man. Not cool. I'm just like, is this guy going to stab me with like a shit? <laughs> like, it was just rough because, you know, like I'm sure, you know, he was stoked just to be in a studio environment or something like that. You know, and I don't, I don't blame him. It is cool, yeah. but it was just not working. And yeah, it's just, it's just kind of rough. <laughs> that's, 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 a, that's a great story. Yeah, it's like, an, it's like one of those American Idol uh, auditions that you'll see that, yeah, I don't watch a lot of American Idol except for the first ones because it's just so gloriously terrible. Uh, you know, those guys who are just like, oh no, they done, you know, they fucked up. Like they're, they're going to, they're going to be, you know, have a whole lot of regret when they see me in a couple of years. It'll be the biggest thing in the world. And you're like, yeah, sure, buddy. It was, it was almost one of those moments where it was like, Dude, please stop. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So let's get into some of your personal taste in music growth and other uh, music stuff. Um, tell me about a perfect record somebody else has made and what makes it perfect. There's two different ones for different reasons. The Raconteurs, uh, Consolers of the Lonely. Mm-hmm. Great record. I think engineering, from an engineering and like rock, like a sound perspective, especially in a modern day setting, even though it's not tracked in modern day ways. Um, that to me was just so awesome. Like cool tones sounded live, but also in a studio at the time, like the songs were great. Uh, not all the same thing going on. It's like, you know, you, that face where your nose squinches up and your lips get tight and you're just like bobbing. Your head. Like <laughs> I can't help but make that face every time that record comes on. It's just like rocking. And it just sounds like, so I don't know, like, um, you know, they obviously did things on purpose because, you know, Jack White is obviously a notorious sort of perfectionist while also like letting the little screw ups kind of slide. And you wonder, like, did you mm-hmm. purposely do that screw up just to make it sound more authentic? Which he probably could because he's that good. But mm. I think that record really just, you know, obviously, well, we had uh, Vance Powell um, mix our in stereo EP and it was you know, a year prior to that. He had the, just the fresh Grammy on his console from mixing that record you know and i ask him i'm like dude so you're like what was it like like what'd you do what's the sound he's like man i'm not gonna lie to you he's like and i hope i'm not giving away anything and i think he'll forgive me for saying this because i'm sure it's not the first time anyone's ever repeated it but joe sent me almost a perfect record he's like when i brought it all up you know to unity it pretty much sounded exactly the way you heard it he's like i did some things you know Mm. some reverbs and this that and the other he's like but for the most part like i just tried to not screw it up and i was like whoa you know so for me it's like that's sort of a perfect record from an engineering standpoint that the guy who mixed it who's obviously got you know ridiculous pedigree and is really really good at what he does didn't even have to really do what he does to make that sound he was like yeah yeah that's that's rad obviously they got great players and they all know tone and you know it's not their first rodeo in a studio, so they think what they were doing. And I think that's like that's part of that vector thing I was talking about, where it's just like, mm-hmm. you know they went in there and were like, yep, this is what I'm gonna do. It's like Babe Ruth calling a shot and then actually doing it. I feel like that's the record that that happened on. And then the second record I would say would be uh, Coldplay Parachutes, just because that's a record I can listen to from front to back and like it's so marvelously simplistic compared to some of the stuff that they've done lately where there's just a giant production, which I do enjoy still. But 
It's just like, man, that's a piano, a guitar player, a bass player, and a drummer. And they didn't really even stack vocals all that much, if at all. No, the, the, very, very minimal on that record. Yeah, and it's just so, like, it's just like, oh, you know, that's just pure, just golden. I, I, I don't even have really words. It's just like, yes, like, I can listen to that to this day, like, front to back, and just like, man, that is so British. It's so great, you know? Um, that I, I just love them. So it's a funny thing too with that record of like I was talking to somebody else about this like the other day of like how that record like if you listen to the records now there's never a stray hiss or noise and there's so many fucked up noises and hisses oh, and yeah. like you know like when he does like a rib click on the snare the gate is just like so off and wrong <laughs> and you're like it's like the opposite of the precision that they have on everything else that they did like the next record was such a reaction and it's so pristine mm-hmm. yeah and that's that's part of the thing too it's like you know, it's, it's what we were talking about earlier. Where it's like, I wish we could go back and re-record some vocals. I'm sure they were sitting there listening to that record like, oh, man. And they're listening to all the, you know, those little things like that. And like, oh, we didn't do this. We didn't do that. We didn't. And then it, but part of that is what makes it so awesome. Where you're just like, this sounds like they're just like, okay, you're next. Play your part. And it's just like, yep, that sounds awesome. And we leave it and we go on. And, you know, we'll just ride the faders just a little bit for mixing. But for the most part, it is what it is, you know. And that's, you know, as fans, we can say that, you know, but as artists, like, you know, we hear all those little things. It's like just bugs you. So I'm sure that their later records were reactions, like you said, to that. Yeah. Tell me about five of your favorite records and your musical growth over the years. Musical growth. Uh, Number one is Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy, Infinite Sadness, because that was the right about the time I had my guitar but you know it hurt to figure out how to play and I had my little Mel Bay how to play guitar book and like the G chord made me want to quit so I was like well I'm done playing guitar and then I heard that and I was like oh oh yeah I want to do that that just sounds like just badass you know that definitely was what got me into rock and roll and made me want to just learn it live it love it like every facet of being a guitar player started there probably trying to go chronologically from there then then it was refused shape of punk to come nice because, that's, that's 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 in my five oh, too dude, it's just well it, again it's that sort of that babe ruth thing it's like oh yeah it, it actually was the shape of punk to come and they did it way before anybody else even had a thought to do something like that it was that that record i can't well you just listen to it just don't even listen to me just go listen to it it'll make you want to change the world (laughs) in one way or the other but change the world then it would have to be um okay computer that for me was like the the ballsiest move any band has made well not any band but from my perspective the ballsiest move that any band's made to go from the bins (laughs) to okay computer and then again i guess to kid a to Kid A, yeah. If anything, maybe even Kid A is the more ballsy move, and then that was just the more uh, ambitious, amazing yeah, move. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in a hundred years or something, if anybody's ever still you know, paying attention to Radiohead, you know, there'll be some sort of conspiracy theory like we have with the Beatles that it's like, oh, they wrote Kid A first, but then they figured that nobody would be able to get it, so they had to write OK Computer so people would understand Kid A. You know, like, <laughs> I like that. that What's the theory of the Beatles? That I've never heard that. Oh theory. no, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying, like something like with the Beatles, you know, where like Paul's dead, and you know. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I forgot about all kind that. Kind of ludicrous yeah, yeah. that it's just like the Beatles were mm-hmm. such a you know 
a mythological thing to people nowadays that didn't live through it where you know some people are just like it was the Beatles they kind of sucked when they started you know which is funny to read all those reviews of like their first album or whatever they put out that people they suck like their harmonies are terrible they you can't even understand what they're saying like blah, get, you know they're not going to go anywhere I just somebody just posted a really good one of all the reviews that came out the week of Ruber's release and it was every one of them is just like turd turd <laughs> I don't know what they're thinking <laughs> exactly yeah no, I, that was just I was saying it'd probably be some sort of you know theory like oh no they had to do that but yeah no that okay computer kid a probably in that slash like okay you know because Kid A makes more sense when you, you know, if you just heard the bins and then Kid A, you'd be like, what the hell? But, you know, like with OK Computer, I think they just like, that's kind of where the weird chord formations came in and straight away from, you know, like high and dry and things like that. So it would be that for me. And then uh, four, try to think of something that puts it more in the near, but not right now. It's not necessarily my favorite all time record, but something that made me really that really struck me really hard was uh, uh, Image and Heat, Speak for Yourself. Oh, yeah, that's great. It's just beautiful. Too. And then when I found out that she actually just does all that, like she's that, it's like, oh, God, man, like where am I <laughs> in all this? Like I'm so far behind. That was huge for me. And then uh, let's see, something more recent that really just makes me, blows my mind. Um, I'm, I'm going to kind of go a little bit down that same road, but not necessarily, you know, uh, specific, pretty much any Bjork record. Nice. Just because, goddamn, like, yeah. <laughs> like it's just so cool. I mean, you know, she works with so many different people, and there's different sounds. Like Timbaland produced a record, you know, yeah. And then she has, you know, from you know Vespertine, and like the new record's crazy. And then, mm. it, yeah, there's just so many, so many cool things that she can do, and her voice is just unbelievable. So, yeah. Very much agree. So tell me your favorite recent record in like the last 12 to 18 months and what inspires you about it? I would say the uh, Yonzi Go Do. Um, it's. Hmm. I don't know. I don't, I don't know this. Record. So it's the singer of Cigarettes. Oh, okay. Um, okay. The record's called Go Do. It's mm-hmm. um, for those who aren't familiar with Cigarettes. It's, um, it, it's an Icelandic band that already you wouldn't understand what they're saying. Uh, he actually wrote his own language for all of their songs. Um, so it's kind of like a Tolkien thing with Elvis. She just made it up. Um, and then this is the first record that he's ever sung in an actual language, but more so English. And it's, it's like one of those records where, you know, like if you're traveling overseas and like going to a faraway land and you're off to experience the world and life is beautiful and full of adventure, this is the record you want to listen to. And it's just so, like, the soundscapes are huge. It's, you know, super ambient, but, like, impactful at the same time. And then the instrumentation is just, uh, God, like, it's so spontaneous and ballsy. Just like, wait, wait, hold on. Like, you brought in a flute for, like, a half bar, and then I don't hear this flute ever again. It's just, like, somebody sitting there going, yeah, we need a flute right here, but only for these two measures. You know, it's like, what? That's... That's the sort of thing that just kind of like intrigues me now. It's like that had to be a huge labor. It's like looking at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. It's like you did what, <laughs> you know? Um, that that for me just to this day, like it, it gives me like I, I feel so many things when I listen to the record. It's just like God, I want to make that record, but I don't because I won't do it nearly as well, you know? Like I want to cover these songs, but for the same reason, I'm not going to. Uh, it's just 
it's just beautiful, man. Like it, it just, it just does something for me. And you know, I, I feel like a lot of times records like that have a shelf life where it does all that for you for a certain period of time, and then you get so familiar with it that you lose some of that. Yeah, because that record's a few years old, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say. I see. I I always thought it was John Z. So I was thinking when you said it, it was like Y O N Z I. I'm like, yeah. Oh. No, <laughs> yeah, it came out in 2011, actually. But, oh wow! Yeah, yeah. No, I I called it John Z for well since mm. I heard the record, and then uh, I actually had an interview with this artist that uh, was looking to write with, maybe produce. That she kind of is in that vein. You know, I say I was like, I don't know if anybody's ever told you this. You probably have heard it a hundred times, but uh, that Jonesy record. And she's like, Oh yeah, Yonzi. And I was like, like <laughs> One of funny. us is not pronouncing this correct. And she was <laughs> like, Yeah, my uh, one of my really good friends did merch for him on his last American tour. I'm like, You're saying it correctly. Okay, so yes. Yonzi, <laughs> nice. it is. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and then all the people that I've talked to about the record, you know, that also pronounce it Yonzi or Jonesy. You know, I'm like, Yeah, dude, that Yonzi record. Not it's it's almost like Moog. You know, like. Yeah, like the yeah. one guy that's saying it correctly there was like, "Oh, that Moog is cool, man." And you're like, oh, "It's Moog." <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice. It's Moog, but you feel like a dick for saying it that way. Can you tell us, uh, lastly, what you've been working on lately? Yeah, I've been. Um, I've actually been in Mixland for a while. Um, did a, this band from Athens, Georgia, named the Norm. It's definitely something I've never done before because they have um, they have some hip hop elements and like the guy raps a little bit over it's almost like if sublime and dave matthews band had a baby the drummer is very like very precise very good has great tone there's two brothers or stepbrothers actually one guy sings and plays acoustic guitar and then another guy is the the rapper and i kind of hate saying rapper i want to say like hip-hop vocalist and try to like you know french it up a little bit but yeah for lack of a better term the rapper uh and then they have you know saxophone lead guitar bass blah blah, blah. um so it's it's, it's really like kind of college band instrumentation which is you know something i'm familiar with i went to college but uh it's something i never really thought i'd be working on but i, I knew the drummer previously because he uh, had tracked with me in a different band um late last year and earlier this year and he's like yeah man i'm moving to georgia want to uh, i'm going to be working on this project with these guys and you know they got a lot of good connections and they work really hard blah 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 would love for you to track him. I'm like, yeah, sure, cool. And then he sent me some of the music, and I was like, whoa. I was like, dude, you you want me to work on this? Because this is uh, a little outside my forte. day. Uh, I was like, you know, I I dig it. Like, I think I could you know make it sound really good, but I can't really bring much to you to be like, yeah, man, I think you got to go with this, you know, like twenty bar jam here. You know, I love that, but I don't really have a whole lot of perspective. <laughs> you know, that mm-hmm. thing. Like, I don't listen to fish, dude. Yes. You know? um, so it was really cool because it's more like pop arrangements and stuff. It's not really, it doesn't really go off on different paths, but it's neat. I'm actually, the, I was mixing that earlier today. Um, we did four songs. They've got like two or three others because one's like a super just pop production they did with a guy in Miami. Um, this, you know, no real instruments other than, you know, singing. You know, they're kind of just doing the whole thing, but uh, it's cool. They got a lot of energy, like a lot of positivity, and I, I love good vibes. So it was um, it was fun to work on. And there's a band here in Nashville that I'm probably going to start tracking, I think, around the first of the year. They're kind of actually waiting for the label deal to go through, which we know how that goes. So they're called the Foxtrots, although I thought it was Charlie and the Foxtrots. And apparently there's a band called Foxtrot uh, as well with two T's at the end. So I don't know where their name's going to be, if they're going to keep it the same or whatever, not my, not my job. Um, but they're really cool. It's kind of like if, and I, I use this very, very lightly and cautiously, but 
Mumford and Sons mixed with the Smiths. Hmm, that's an interesting combo. Yeah, so it's got a little bit of that folky vibe, like as far as, you know, acoustic guitar, sort of energetic acoustic guitar. But with the Smiths, sort of like the guy's voice really reminds me of Morrissey, which is the first time I've actually ever said that. Not, not a lot of people who can do yeah, that. Yeah, no, he just, he just has that like, you know, that Morrissey thing. Uh, but very cool, like very edgy. Uh, I think, you know, one line in the, the spec single we did was, uh, you know, took her panties off at the bar. You know, just it, talking about fucking in the bathroom, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm, nice. so I'm like, I, you know, I wouldn't have written that, but you know, I, I dig it. I'll listen to that all day, but you know, I, I wouldn't want my mom to hear that. So, <laughs> nor my wife, but yeah, that, that, that's, that's kind of the, the realm of things. And I've got, I've got a bunch of projects coming up, um, February, March, but I'm actually having a baby in February. So that'll, oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I'm super stoked, but kind of, you know, with in this business you have to book things so far out in advance it's like oh shit i hope she's kind of on time <laughs> yeah she's yeah, early yeah. i'm screwed if she's super late i'm also screwed so well oh well i guess i'm just going to be exhausted for a variety of reasons rather than just one <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 